My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. If you've got an elderly parent or an elderly loved one in your life, You should know, you likely already know, that at some point, they're probably going to have a fall. Falls are by far the most common reason that seniors end up in emergency rooms. Falls are unfortunate, they're accidental, they're scary to think about for caregivers, children, and relatives. But they are also an everyday occurrence, part of aging the sort of predictable problem that any well-equipped, functioning healthcare system should be ready to handle. It's the well-equipped and functioning part of that, though, that we're going to discuss today. Our guest is a longtime health reporter, someone who has covered the ins and the outs of Canadian healthcare for years, someone who thought she understood our system how it works, and how it doesn't. Then her dad took a fall, and he ended up in that system. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Elizabeth Payne is a health reporter for The Ottawa Citizen, where she wrote a long feature that I think has resonated uh, with a ton of people. Is that fair to say, Elizabeth? I believe that is absolutely fair to say. I've heard from so, so many people uh, with similar stories who said they were quite moved and found support in the piece. So We'll talk about that for sure, because that is a, a big aspect of this. But maybe as we begin, um, one of the things that you wrote in your piece that The Citizen used as a, a tagline for it is that I thought I understood the health system, but I really didn't until my father fell. Now, you are a health reporter, so what did you think you understood, and what was your perception that changed through this story? Yeah, um, I do understand the health system uh, to a large extent. I've been a health reporter for a long time, Mm -hmm. and um, I uh, have been, of course, over the last number of years, writing about the pandemic, the post-pandemic, its impact on the health system. So I I knew about staff shortages and and how serious they can be. I knew about outbreak control within hospitals. Um, I had read and written a lot about elder care and I did understand that. But then when my father became part of this system, I think what I didn't entirely understand was that it, these weren't one-offs. These these outbreaks in hospitals weren't a bad day for people and, and then maybe a few days to recover. These long waits in emergencies weren't just, you know, extremely frustrating and, and you know, hard for individuals and families. They were part of a continuum of care. And if Mm. you were old and were going to be spending some time in the hospital system, 
They, at every step of the way, chipped away at your health and how able you would ever be to walk out those doors again. And that's what I really began to understand with my dad. Before we get into the hard stuff, because this is um, a pretty sad story that has resonated, tell us about your dad. Uh, Who was he? What did he do? What was he like? Yeah, my dad was, um, he was full of life in many ways. He had a really interesting life. He um, grew up in a small, smallish place in Alberta, uh, an only child, and um, became an engineer. And in fact, didn't graduate as an engineer until my mom and dad had three kids. I think I was the third and I was born the day he finished his last exam, maybe. Hmm. Um, But that took him all over the world, throughout Canada, of course. But uh, later, my parents lived in Indonesia and Venezuela. And he was passionate about exercise, firmly believed that that was all you needed in life, kind of to his detriment as he began to age. Very social, um, and But, you know, we had some health issues as he got older. He was living alone through the pandemic, which was tough mm-hmm. and, um, you know, had some back issues. And um, it was, you know, I think like many trying to avoid getting into the health system, but that didn't happen. So, How did it happen? Where and when did he fall? Yeah, he was, you know, he was living alone in the big house. He and my mom and had lived in for years and we were worried about that. Yeah. I have three sisters and, you know, we were trying to convince him to come closer, to live closer to us. It, 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 he wasn't really going any, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was driving, you know, it was a smallish town. He was okay, but he spent a lot of time going to the bank. That was one of his, one of his favorite stops. They knew him very well there, and he was just simply standing in line, and he took a fall. And lots of people knew him. They called an ambulance and sent him to the nearest hospital, which it turns out is 30 kilometers away because they closed the ER in the hospital just down the road. So, so that's where he ended up. Older people fall, and this is not, a, it's not unexpected. This is, I mean, theoretically, I guess, a, a relatively routine situation where somebody of this age needs medical care for this issue. Yeah, that's right. I wrote, I think, now I have to look at the numbers, but 80% of elderly people are going to fall at some point. It often leads to further health issues. It, it is a very common scenario. Falls are quite common as people get older um, for a variety of reasons. So that happened to my dad. And, you know, we, of course, worried a lot about his head, um, mm-hmm. that he might have had a head injury or a concussion. So he he went into the hospital by ambulance and then a very familiar scenario to so many people. He He sat in a queue with other people on stretchers being wheeled in. And there he sat on the other side of a glass window. Um, one of my sisters had rushed down. And he was, um, you know, I think there was a bit of adrenaline at first. He was trying to chat to people, talk to people. My sister couldn't get near him to kind of, you know, tell him what was going on. Mm -hmm. But as the day progressed, he became, like, not happy and and started to be somewhat delusional, uh, which is a common hospital-induced delirium or injury-induced delirium in elder people uh, who can suddenly start, you know, seeing things and talking out loud. There's a sort of shock of it all. He was trying to get out, didn't want to be there. So, it, you know, it was kind of alarming and worrisome. And he was right. in a, wasn't in a room for, you know, days. He was in a little cubicle with fluorescent lights in the middle of the emergency department. 
was loud. It was disorienting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was worrisome. Um, and he was showing signs of it taking its toll already. How long did that initial assessment and treatment take? I mean, you just said days. So just sort of walk us through, you know, he's waiting in the emergency room and and then what? Well, he was waiting in the emergency room. He ended up in in a sort of cubicle at the end of it. It was a very busy, as they are, and very noisy emergency room. Right. So we were wondering when he would get a room um, just for his own, you know, mental health and ours. And we're told, oh, he is admitted. This is his room. So mm. so that was, you know, the, the sort of bed shortage is what you do is you put patients in spaces and it wasn't great. He couldn't sleep. So it then took a number of days before he did get in a room. Um, so I, I don't know the number of days. It was several at least where he was he was hanging out in the emergency department and um, and it wasn't great. At what point in this did what you were seeing happen with your dad diverge from your expectations about what should be happening or what would happen in the system? Because, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you you know emergency rooms are overcrowded, beds are at a premium, it's difficult to get admitted. At what point did you start to understand that, like, oh, this is is how it is? Yes, I think it, it was fairly soon after he got there. He, you know, his his injuries weren't that bad. He had broken his arm. He could be just let go the same day, but it didn't happen with him. A cardiologist came along and not, you know, not too long. He was still in emergency then and said, you know, you need a pacemaker. Your heart rate's too low and that should essentially solve all the problems. You'll be good to go. So it was very positive. But then... What began to happen were sort of little micro traumas that you endure in the hospital and things that slow everything down. So there was an outbreak. He didn't get infected with COVID, but other people were. And that meant he couldn't get up. He couldn't have help. There were fewer staff around. And he did get the pacemaker and it should have made a big difference. I think he felt much better. But the problem was mobility and he wasn't getting up and they just didn't have enough people to help with it. And, you know, that began to get quite worrisome. You know, he was having delirium. Mm. And so it's hard to say. I mean, I think it might be, have been more in hindsight, but he, he, he went, you know, not too long, got sent for, to a rehab hospital. And that seemed to be, you know, we were thrilled. That seemed a great thing and just what he needed. And, right. he, you know, he would get moving and he would get out. And when staff shortages and COVID and other issues, delays, you couldn't reach people became an issue there, then it was clear how much he had lost and how hard it would ever be for him to get back to where he was. I mean, I think it was a slow realization for my sisters and I that um, he wasn't ever going to be independent again. Why had he lost so much and how typical is that? Do we expect that when an elderly person enters the health system? Does it have to do with the length of time they're spending there? Yes, I mean, that is something I had known, but I didn't fully understand how quickly the elderly lose mobility. It, you know, it really can be in a matter of days. Um, I've been told that for every day, left lying on a bed, on a gurney, it'll take two days to regain the muscle mass. Mm. I mean, the older you get, the less less muscle mass you have. So it takes a while to get it back and get your mobility back. And so, you know, multiply that, multiply that. 
And there's also evidence that that uh, elders who spend like over several overnights in emergency, their outcomes are far worse than if they hadn't just kind of the stress of it all. But the mobility piece, also eight hours on a stretcher lying down is enough to begin to have an impact on skin. And that can lead to bed sores, to pressure ulcers, which are, you know, what my dad suffered from. And they're terrible. What are we supposed to be doing in the medical system to prevent this kind of stuff? Where is the current system, and I'm not trying to blame anybody uh, who's working their hardest in hospitals right now, but where is the current system dropping the ball? Yeah, and I do want to say that, I mean, throughout, you know, they were often stressed, certainly sometimes, you know, curt with answers, but there were fabulous healthcare workers who were just, you know, just pedaling as fast as they could to keep up and mm-hmm. not able to do so. So hospitals do know, researchers do know and have known for decades and decades about the harms of too much time in bed, especially for the elderly. And there's programs that work. They've been used in Canada. Uh, Mount Sinai Hospital has pioneered uh, the ACE program. And essentially, they do things like only use catheters in patients when absolutely necessary. Don't don't sort of just do them because that's what we do. Limit the the wires and things that are going to keep people stuck in bed and make mobility a priority. Make sure they get out of bed, even if there's someone who's had a fall. And that often, if it's somebody who's had a fall, there's a fear of letting them move around because they might fall again. And so that, you know, becomes a, a cycle. Right. With the pandemic, with staffing shortages, with the situation we're in now, you know, people understand it, but to get them really implemented and really used is difficult. So they're they're slowly catching on. I I think there are some huge bumps in the road, though. As all this was happening, did you find that your experience and your work um, better prepared you? And how so to be able to navigate the system and advocate uh, on your dad's behalf? And I'm I'm asking this because, you know, there's probably, I know there are people listening right now for whom this is one of their greatest fears or worst experiences. And, and they're probably thinking like, geez, if a health reporter can get caught up in it like this, what chance do the rest of us have? Yeah, no, I think that's a valid concern. You know, I, I know people who are better advocates than me, to be fair. I I sometimes am slow to process things and then, you know, after the fact, <laughs> get there. But, yeah. for example, when my dad, in a room of, with four, a total of four men, all 85 plus, uh, when they had COVID, they were not going to give them Paxlovid, which is the treatment for it. And and we certainly fought for that. And it, they, they didn't seem clear on why they weren't going to. And I can't, nobody could articulate why it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But so that did happen. And everyone else in his room got it too as a result. And that did make a difference. He had a far less severe case than he might have. Um, he still had to be on oxygen afterwards, which further limited his ability to move. So it was almost like things were happening and it was hard to put your finger on what was going wrong. And it was just sort of out of grasp. And it was little things like, you know, some person who asked to do an assessment was away for a family wedding and that meant it was summer and 
it didn't happen and the days ticked away and it took longer and, uh, yeah. you know, little things like that. What can you do? I don't know what you can do about them. You can make a lot of noise and um, the health system is, uh, you know, people working in it are apologetic and they know full well what's going on. But right. um, for individuals, there are, you know, there's fallout. So. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, you know, one of the things that we're often taught uh, or told is to advocate for ourselves or advocate for our loved ones in the system um, to help them get what they need. You know, after reading your story and, and hearing those experiences, is there anything left to advocate for? Like, are there, when we talk about advocacy, we kind of think like, oh, there are those resources, you know, just down the hallway or just at the next hospital or whatever, that if, if I'm the loud person or if I'm the, the pleasant person, I can get this for my loved one. Do those exist in the current system? Yeah, I, I think people do have to advocate and it does make a difference. And I think it's, you know, it's important to remind people that this is a person who needs, you know, needs this help. And yes, mm -hmm. it will take you a few more minutes. But yes, I think you have to remind health care givers who, who this person, who your loved one is and what your expectations for and what they deserve and, and what they can give them. And absolutely, advocacy is, is huge. You know, I know also I've written many stories about the kind of trauma nurses and healthcare professionals are going through because they know they can't give the kind of care that they should be and, mm. and they understand what's missing. So um, if you can, maybe explain to us what ultimately ended up causing your dad to pass. So my dad went into a rehab hospital and then at a certain point, essentially, we were told he wasn't getting any better and he was in palliative care. So he spent the, the last month in a palliative care room in that hospital. Mm -hmm. And so there was no mobility at all. There wasn't even an attempt to, we were told it could be dangerous. He was in so much pain. So he was given lots of pain meds, um, but he didn't die. So we, you know, with their advice, looped him to a nearby long-term care home, which was run by the municipality and was actually a really great place. And the people were great and they were mortified. They highly worked on mobility, didn't let people eat in bed or sit in bed or but by then it was very hard for him. He, you know, he was in a lot of pain. He was on a lot of drugs. You know, he started choking on food, was mm -hmm. given more pureed food and and just, you know, I don't know, to be honest, what caused him to, his death. I think he he was tough enough that he stayed around as long as he did. But uh right. you know, he grew very weak and very thin and was having a hard time eating and uh and passed away there. And, you know, in the end, we were there. We spent a lot of time there. It was peaceful and quiet. It just, you know, it, it, the whole experience wasn't great. He was, in a, he was in a nice place for his final days. I don't think he would have wanted to be there, but mm -hmm. we thought it was a good place. So, And this is just, I mean, I realize, you know, you're not going to get a, a full and final cause of, of how this happened. But, like, if you look back and, and sum it up, is it just the, like lack of mobility that just uh, entered the system, sat down, lay down, and nobody really got him up? Yeah, part of it. I mean, I, I think essentially he died from pressure sores, bed sores, when they reached stage four, which my dad had reached by then. I think that's what kills you, huh. which is alarming and 
should not happen. So that's the part that's quite appalling about it. But uh, it was a combination of things, I would think, but those certainly were were a big part of it. I mentioned this off the top, but um, the story was published about a, a week and a half ago, and newspaper features don't always uh, land with this kind of impact, especially these days. And this one um, certainly seemed to. Explain what happened to, to you when this was published. Yeah, I write newspaper stories. This was 5,000 words long. For me, that's a very long story. To anybody. To anybody. And, you know, who reads long newspaper stories? But um, the impact was immediate. I mean, just in terms of feedback, I was getting online in my email box. We were getting in response to the story and it it went on. I, I just, I really have never experienced anything like it. Can you describe some of it? Yeah, I got, um, it ran across the country. This story was the most read across the entire post-media chain, which is pretty remarkable, actually. Mm-hmm. And I received so many emails from so many people, many of them saying, I've never written to a journalist before. Many of them telling me they felt like I was telling their story. Many of them saying it helped to make them feel less alone, less guilty, less sad. Many saying it had given them, you know, a new sense of why they should, you know, advocate for their loved ones. Because everyone's been through it. I mean, in some ways, I think there is a huge untapped reserve of unresolved grief out there, Mm -hmm. in part because of the pandemic in the last few years. But, you know, it's hard losing a loved one. It's hard losing a parent, of course. But I think in a way, this made people feel that their sense it could be better was validated, you know, that we just accept this is the way things have to go. And Mm -hmm. there's been a real light shone on long-term care, but I'm not sure the same has been shone on hospitals. And hospitals, you know, I often, you know, cringe when I hear this reference to how many hospital beds are full of so-called ALC patients, patients who shouldn't be there, it'd be somewhere else as if they're not really, you know, they're phantom patients, they're not really their problems. And yet, That's who's in the hospital. That's who's coming to emergency departments. And they all too often are really not the focus. And I think many people have, you know, have experienced the trauma or the guilt of seeing their parents go through this. What do you want those people to take away from from this story, from their own experience? And and how do we use these kind of stories to... Um, I'm not asking you, even a health reporter, to fix the healthcare system. But how do we how do we use these stories to better understand what's happening here and how to make it better? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think very much this is my own story. This is one person's story. It's not. It's not a unique story. It is almost an everyday story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a journalist, so I could see it through that lens and tell it. So. I I think, you know, what really connected with people was the humanity. Um, And I think that sometimes too often is what gets lost in healthcare and our too busy health system is Mm. the humanity and understanding who these people are. But I think also, you know, just not accepting what's not good enough. I think people were left with that and I hope so. And I hope, you know, those who can make a difference in the system who will pay attention to this, that I think too often this is a lost demographic who, you know, you just can't do everything. So people 
you know, the world gives up on. And, you know, they're all our parents and we'll all be there in not too long. Mm. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not the way things should be. Elizabeth, thank you so much for this. And thanks for writing the story and sharing it. I know uh, I felt it. I'm sure uh, a ton of other people did too. Oh, thanks very much for this. Elizabeth Payne from The Ottawa Citizen. That was the big story for more stories, including plenty about the problems in our healthcare system right now. You can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can offer us feedback or request a topic for us to cover or anything else you like by sending us an email. The address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also call us, talk it out, leave a voicemail. The number to do that is 416-935-5935. This podcast, it's available in every podcast player, and it's also on your smart speaker. All you got to do is ask it to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Tomorrow.